Welcome to Sheer Clarity, the show that will teach you about leadership by attraction, building self-awareness, and how to develop exceptional self-management abilities that will help you become more reflective, more open, more trusting, and more engaging with the people who matter to you most. In other words, make you a better leader. Head on over to SheerClarity.com where you can learn more, subscribe to the show for free, and connect on social media. And now, here's your host, Jay Kevin McHugh. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Sheer Clarity. I am Jay Kevin McHugh, your host. Leadership by attraction is the main mission of Sheer Clarity. And how do you become a leader by attraction? You become absolutely crystal clear about your internal network, what's happening inside of you, your emotional intelligence, your life story, and how does it affect how you roll and what kind of energy you put into the world. And so I'm speaking today to another amazing leader. This is a guy I've known for at least 20 years. I want to introduce you all to Buddy Teaster and welcome him to the show. Good morning, Buddy. Good morning, Kevin. It's my pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm going to let Buddy do most of the talking about his organization because it's an amazing story. And then I think we might pivot into what's going on in his world, and particularly in these days of coronavirus. So at the beginning, Buddy, why don't you just sort of tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, what Souls for Souls is all about, and then we'll sort of let this migrate into a discussion. And hopefully we're trying to get our listeners something that they can use to grow as leaders. So just give us an intro for you. Well, Kevin, thanks. I know you do an amazing job of trying to bring out the best in people. I've seen that for a long time. So it's a real privilege to sit across the microphone, so to speak, from you. Thank you. So I'm currently the CEO at Souls for Souls. We're based in Nashville, Tennessee, but we collect and distribute shoes and clothes globally. We collect new and used shoes and clothes really as a way to turn those into opportunity for other people. So we think about that and I'm happy to get more into it, but some of those things we sell to people in the developing world and that's an opportunity for them to create a business or a job, an opportunity for them to earn an income and hopefully get themselves and their families out of poverty for the long term. So that's one way we think about opportunity. There's another piece that we think about, what is the opportunity to do something good for the planet? We all have shoes and clothes in our closets that we can't use, don't wear. And most of the time, sadly, they end up in the landfill. But we have a model, as do others, of turning those things into opportunity that I just talked about. And so it makes us feel good about what we're doing with what we buy. And it's turning into an opportunity for somebody else. And then the last piece is it's an opportunity to serve. You know, there are people who I think really care about making a difference and they want to be hands-on. So we provide that, whether that's doing a shoe drive. So it creates that opportunity for other people to donate their shoes and clothes. It's an opportunity to travel with us. It's an opportunity to volunteer and maybe put shoes on people's feet or clothes on people's backs. And more and more, I see, Kevin, as we talk about the divide in this country and around this world of whether it's income or race or or education, there is something really powerful about touching somebody else's feet or going into somebody else's home and see what having the chance to earn an income will do for their families that make all that kind of extraneous stuff go away. And so that's how we think about what we do. Wow. Beautifully, beautifully said. I want to make a note to the audience as well. We're doing this via Zoom. And for people who want to have context, I believe this episode will drop next week. And who knows how the world will have changed because we are in the midst of this uh, coronavirus uh, challenge that is facing the world, the entire world. And everyone in the world looks to the United States to lead. So there's a lot riding, not only for us individually here in this country, but for the entire world, because people are looking for us. We have the best resources on the planet for meeting a challenge like this. So the Zoom line apparently has just been blowing up. The Zoom server system has been absolutely, I think it may have even crashed last week for a short period, but there are people now who are doing life just the way you and I are doing it right now. So in the event we have a little audio delay or a pause or a couple of these moments, um, I just want to tune the audience in. We're going to go. We're going to keep going anyway. I actually dropped out of an interview a couple of days ago because it was so bad. But I think we'll be okay because everything sounds good so far. So that's a quick heads up. 
And then I want the audience to know, as we were talking, and Buddy was introducing you to himself and the organization Souls for Souls, we'll come back for that. But when we started talking, I asked him, how's he doing? And we got into a conversation. And I want, I just stopped him. I said, I'm calling an audible. Let's hit record and talk about it because I think it's timely. So I'll go back to my original question, buddy, and tell me how life is going for you right now, for the organization, for yourself, the family, and what's going on for you in this world of COVID, not to mention the place where you live. You started to tell me about the uh, tornado. So I'm just going to shut up and, and I want you to sort of plug in about what's really going on right now for you and how sure. you're seeing it. So we're based in Nashville. That's where I am this morning. And about three weeks ago, we had, I mean, mind-blowingly powerful tornadoes and storms move through middle Tennessee that left the trail of destruction. is about 60 miles long, 800 yards wide. And it's just, it's still unbelievable to me how fast and powerful was it night. And so most people were in their you know, homes and apartments, just terrifying. Where I live, nothing didn't even, like it didn't even rain. So the disparity between what I walked out the backyard and said, there's nothing and five miles away, it's leveled, right? So it was, it was one of those kind of moments personally, but then to go and see it hit really here in Nashville, two parts of town, one sort of hip and up and coming, and everybody was focused on that. And another part in North Nashville, which is mostly African-American and doesn't have the resources and the attention. And so again, you think about all these ways that divides are an issue right now, boy, it became crystal clear. And I have to give Nashville a lot of credit because you know, musicians, Nashville's Music City. Right. A lot of the musicians and kind of what's cool about Nashville is in East Nashville. And so we got a ton of attention. But once there was a cry that went out that said, hey, wait a minute, we got a lot of other folks in our community who are just as devastated, fewer resources, and nobody's paying attention. It was incredible. I mean, just the whole, if you say how long it takes to turn a battleship, it did not happen here in Nashville. I mean, overnight, pivoted to North Nashville. So that effort was going really strong. And then coronavirus just ramps up here in the U.S. And so the opportunities to help those people, whether you want to volunteer or donate goods or crews to get out and help them rebuild their houses, it just come to a halt. So that's been really frustrating to have people here in our community. And we have shoes and clothes to help them. Other people have other things and we can't do it. So that's one piece that's very local, but informs kind of all the folks who work for Souls for Souls and live here in Middle Tennessee. But then it very quickly became a lot of our corporate partners are retailers and brands. So they felt this early on, right? They weren't getting goods from China where it hit first. Yep. So yep. things that they were expecting like that were shut down. And now it's, it's moved through Europe and here where we have partners and companies who are laying off thousands of people. Their stores are closed. There's a guy on our board who represents the Footwear Distributors and Retailers Association. It's the main lobbying group. Right. He said he's getting sales reports with major companies where there's a zero. So to think about the destruction of that after the destruction of the tornado here is can't imagine. It's very humbling and sobering. You know, we're doing all the things that everybody's doing. People are working from home, social distancing. We're trying to keep our team. Everybody's working. We're paying everybody. We're committed to that, but we're a small business and you know, we have 70 employees. And we're an important employer in some of the places that we are. You know, it's everything that everybody else is experiencing. There's the, what does it mean for me? There's, what does it mean for the people who make a living here and get a lot of meaning and value out of the work that Souls for Souls does? And then we're just a small piece of that eco ecosystem where there are thousands of people really hurting. And I don't know that we can do very much in the short term. And that's really frustrating. Oh, man. The guests should know. I mean, we'll get to a spot maybe where you can talk about your background. But I will tell them that you spent a lot of time in the Young Presidents Organization. And I just want to tell the audience, I mean, I, I have a, a guy on the other end of the phone here who's literally worked with thousands of CEOs around the globe. And I mean, in as upfront, close, personal way, also in a broad organizational way, and I know he has a philosophy around leadership. I know he's an amazing leader. The podcast is about leadership. So I was going to ask this question, buddy. As you're laying out what you've watched locally, like a double devastation, and of course those tornadoes were on the news and then off the news. And so the rest of us, I mean, this is, to be honest, the first time I'm even thinking about 
Tennessee and Nashville and what happened, right? And all of a sudden, it's kind of hitting me like a wave, this idea of suffering and this idea of disaster and the response and the helplessness that goes with it. So my question is, what do you, what do you have to say to people who are in positions of leadership when something of this magnitude hits? What should they be thinking? What should they be doing? What's their first sort of go-to that is going to make them stand out as a leader in the middle of a crisis? I mean, what are your instincts and your experience and what you've seen? You were describing some of it. And I don't know, just talk about that for a minute. You know, Kevin, look, you've been at this longer than I have, but I've been at it a while and I can't answer that question. I sort of know what works for souls for souls right now, here in this moment, how to extrapolate that. I'm very leery to do that. But I, the thing that has worked for us, so when I came to Souls for Souls in 2012, the organization was in really bad shape. We were bankrupt. Morale was terrible. We were losing lots of money still. The board was, I mean, sort of everything that you would say, hey, how are you doing, would be terrible. Terrible. <laughs> so one of the, I think, most important things that we did early on was to say, we have a chance to reestablish everything that we do here but we should start with our values and what are they and at that time they certainly had not been articulated because that's one of the reasons the organization gotten so far off course and so starting back in 2012 2013 we came up with four values that fortunately are easy to remember because they make an acronym but they are we are committed to being transparent entrepreneurial accountable and that the work is meaningful so it spells team super easy to remember so what I'm finding time after time is that when we get to either a big opportunity or a big crisis, that's the thing to go back to. So I'm not, other organizations and people have different values and are just as valid. And so I'm not advocating for these necessarily. But for us to be able to come back to those and people know that's what we say, they see that, that, that we demonstrate that and that we don't throw those overboard when times get tough or when there's a chance to make a lot of money or whatever it is that might give you the chance to say, oh, well, I believe in these, except this is really different. No. <laughs> say them again. So I want the, the, the listeners to hear them sure. again. So it's for us, it's to be transparent, entrepreneurial, accountable, and that the work is meaningful. So T-E-A-M. And when you say meaningful, tell me a little bit about that. Because I'm a big proponent about having leaders understand their sense of their own meaning and purpose. Like here you are, you're just a human. You happen to be and could be in charge of a two, three, four billion dollar organization. You could have 5,000 people or you can be a, a locally held business doing 50 or 60 million and you have 150 people. But this idea of meaningful sounds interesting to me. And I was wondering if you could just tell me what that means when you use it. Sure. So actually, this is the timing of this is great. So every week we have an all team meeting and we just go alphabetically. Everybody gets a value and they tell a story about that value to the whole team. So this Monday was my turn and I had meaningful. So I'm prepared for your question. <laughs> I told um, you I told you this would work just fine if we <laughs> if we didn't have a plan. <laughs> so for us and for me personally, I think about it in two dimensions is that The work needs to be meaningful to the people that we say we serve. I think it's easy, especially in the not-for-profit world, but I would say more broadly to say, well, what I'm doing is important. And because of these metrics, I believe that. And what we have learned is we need to make sure that the shoes and clothes that we provide are what the people there need and want. So that's one dimension is that the things that we're doing, the goods that we're providing are meaningful to the people that we say we serve. The second dimension is that every person's role in the organization brings them meaning, whether you are the receptionist, you're in accounting, or whether you're actually one of those people who is in a regular position to put shoes on people's feet or to help somebody understand how to run a small business so that she can be successful. So in some of those, that's pretty easy. And some of that's hard, but we talk about it all the time of how do you find that meaning? So for us, that's sharing stories. We make sure that everybody on our team has the opportunity to travel with us if they want to, so they can have that firsthand experience. But the other thing for me that where I get the most meaning out of this work, and I 
I've never been happier in my life. I, I love what I'm doing now more than I've ever loved doing anything is all the ways that we don't know we're having an impact. So I'll give you one small thing. So we support entrepreneurship and we believe that's long-term gonna be the best approach to poverty around the world. Our business model is set up to do that, but we've not had a great way to help train these entrepreneurs who've maybe never done it before. They don't know anything about bookkeeping or market research. And they're in places where those resources don't exist for them, right? Often they're barely literate. There's certainly no kind of training. So we partnered with a group in Colorado called the Street Business School that provides this curriculum. And they are unbelievable. I'm so blown away by the success they've had. What's it called so again? To say it again. The, yeah, sure. Street Business School. Okay. And they were working mostly in Africa. Uh, they were doing the training in Kenya, but people from all across the continent came. I got a chance to experience it and we brought it to Central America where we do a lot of work. And we connected some of our partners from Haiti, Honduras, and Guatemala. And they are on fire with what they're delivering to their communities. It's really incredible. So Haiti you know, is, is a political mess, economic mess. And yet we have two different groups who are training 20 different groups of women, two different groups of 20 women to be entrepreneurs. In Honduras, we're seeing the same thing. We're getting started in Guatemala. It's just, it's unbelievable. So we've got this great momentum going, Kevin. And then, then COVID-19 hits. And Honduras is on a, like a military lockdown. This isn't just, hey, you should stay at home. This is police in the streets. If we catch you, you're going to jail or getting a fine. It is no fooling around. So a lot of these communities where we're doing this training, if you can't get out and work, you go hungry. This isn't like, oh, I'm inconvenienced. It's I'm going to starve. It's day to day that you make your living. And now they can. So these two groups that met partially through us in Honduras, we had nothing to do with this, but we helped them know each other. One of the groups is in a bigger town, got food, worked with the police to bring an entire load of food, rice and beans and a few other things to this community that was after just 10 days starting to go hungry. I, didn't I don't get any credit for that. But the meaning that I get from knowing that those people know each other in part because Souls for Souls is committed to this vision of helping entrepreneurs flourish, that happened. Well, there's nothing more meaningful for me in the world to know that those people are helping each other in ways that I never could. And I had just a tiny little bit to do with it. And the rest was all them. So the message I'm wondering if my audience is absorbing it the way I'm, I'm hearing it is one of the incredible elements that you can start with is your values and make sure they're real, like they're in your bones and you walk them and you don't just talk them. But it sounds like what you're doing and have been doing is making sure people stay in touch with them. You are actively engaged in making sure people are in touch with them. And the way you do that is you actually have staff meetings and every meeting somebody has a value and has to explain in the last week or month, whatever the meeting frequency is, how that value worked out. And then you pick this value called meaning, which has really struck me. And the idea of the work itself is others focused. It's meaning is coming with a question, is what we're doing for the people actually meaningful to them? And that is a beautiful concept. I mean, anything that's being sold at any time, trying to get our people to connect with the customer or the client, the end user, is a vital part of being successful. And I'm just not sure we have enough organizations who think like that because meaning is everything. And then the second part of meaning when you described it was making sure that the people who work here are finding meaning in their work. And once again, you can't just assume that's happening. You're actually testing for it through storytelling, through discussion. And it's a real ongoing part of who you are and what you do. And then, of course, the actual organization as a nonprofit is a difference maker in, in the entire world. I don't know if everyone necessarily can attach that kind of meaning to their specific work, but the message I'm getting here is meaning is powerful. And I think for me, Kevin, at Souls for Souls, the two biggest values that have combined to get us back on track and make it successful is being really transparent about what we do, why we do it, how successful we are, or where we miss the mark, and meaning. 
being entrepreneurial and being accountable, I think apply to lots of situations also, but that transparency and meaning when they get coupled, I think are, have been for souls for souls, really powerful. In the transparency uh, category, what what does that mean to you when you use it in the organization? Because I can think of a thousand different ways, whether it's sharing numbers, sharing metrics, and down to are you honest with each other in day to day conversations? You know, do you feel safe saying what's on your mind? So maybe just tease that out because what you're describing is there's a synergy. Of the four values, you see two of them that are highly interactive and synergistic, both transparency and meaning. They save, if I hear you correctly and exaggerate just a bit, they may have been what saved the organization and helped it become where it is today. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I really do feel like, especially at the beginning, transparency, because Souls for Souls was in such bad shape and nobody had been honest about how bad it was. So they weren't sharing numbers and the numbers that they were sharing were from an accounting standpoint, accurate. They just did not in any way reflect what was actually happening. And some of that is unique to the way not-for-profits can do accounting. It makes me nuts that there aren't standards around it. But when we got really clear, people were like, yes, be transparent. And they were like, okay, here it is. And it is terrible. Like, whoa, maybe not so much transparency <laughs> right away. If you could just shield <laughs> me from the truth of touch. <laughs> could you ease me into this? But so, so it started internally but it very quickly became kind of the thing that we led with. We went out to talk to corporate partners who, like any company, when they partner with a not-for-profit, they're putting their reputation at risk. So if Souls for Souls gets drubbed in the press, which is what had happened, they are also affected. And you know they're quick to react like, we don't need that. So by being transparent with our partners and donors, from the beginning is saying, hey, it's bad. It's probably worse than anybody thought. Here's our plan. And I promise to come back to you and tell you how we're doing. So that was a, an important level. A lot of that was around the financial piece, as you said, that's, and we still share the numbers every month. So we do that. But I think the other thing, Kevin, that has been more important around transparency is, and this is probably a, a lesson I wish I'd learned a lot sooner is taking time to explain why instead of just what and how. So our model includes this component that we call microenterprise, where we sell used and sometimes new products to people in the developing world. And so on the surface, there are a lot of people who go, you're selling stuff to poor people. You're terrible. You should give it to them. They don't have the money. You're making their lives harder. And I get that. At the same time, when we're able to say, this is why we take this approach. We believe that earning a living, there is a qualitative difference that matters to people that they earned it with. And, and, and we all know that. But when it's when you see somebody who's hungry or doesn't have adequate help right away. And sometimes that's not the best way to help is to give them something, right? And that's emotionally hard. So we explain why we do. And then we also learned, Kevin, that there is this sort of reciprocal thing we did not anticipate. But when you're in a commercial transaction with someone, let's say in Haiti, who especially when you are already at a disadvantage societally, but now they've got the power to come back and say, I don't like this price, I don't like this quality, I don't like whatever, and they are equals, that is unbelievably powerful for them. And we didn't anticipate that, right? We just said, well, we're gonna sell you stuff and, and you'll pay for it. But what we saw was it made them equals. And that as much as anything else was something that sustained them in all kinds of other ways in their lives. That had nothing to do with us, but we help them understand that they had that kind of power. So you're, are you connecting the idea of sharing the why that that is the activator that brings people into a sense of peership? I, oh, I get it. I'm on the same sheet of music. I understand the why, and that helps them feel that they're on equal footing. And I'm guessing it's interesting because if you do know the why behind a particular decision, you're not left with the other part of you that's always asking questions. And then when there are unanswered questions, people start making up their own answers. And <laughs> absolutely. And look, Simon Sinek, start with why. I mean, there are people who said this a thousand times that's better right. than I'll ever that's say right. it, right? But the thing that has been hardest for me is you don't share why once. Like it is. Every time, every time we talk about microenterprise, whether there's an employee or a new partner or a new traveler, I have to remember just because I've heard it 10,000 times, 
doesn't mean anything, <laughs> right? For them, it's the first time. And I better show up and talk about it like it's my first time because I won't get another chance to help them understand why we do what we do. They may say, you know what? I hate it. Don't like it. I want to do something else. 100% okay with that. As long as we've been clear about why we're doing it and they get a, they get a chance to hear that. That's been the hardest things. Like we've told you this, we've said this, we blah, doesn't matter. <laughs> Even the people who sometimes they've heard it once, then they're like, wait a minute, does that, did that really connect to what I just saw? And they come back and they still have questions. You got to say it again. You can't be frustrated. You can't be mad, buddy. You just got to go do it again. And that's been a huge takeaway is to not get riled up when that happens. You're saying not, not get riled up when you have to repeat and send the same meshes over and over and explain it again and again. Let me ask you this question. If a leader was actually getting riled up, a la impatient or frustrated, what do you think that is? You know, how did you get over this being riled? <laughs> because I think that's an emotional response, right? And, oh, yeah. and even if you don't say it, I, and I tell leaders this all the time, you don't have to say anything. I call it energy. And the energy that a person has when they are riled up, hiding it as so they think they are, forget about it. This goes back to transparency. It's actually felt. Yeah. People sense it because they have a, a they have right. a system of radar that's psychological in nature and their protection systems are already on full alert. And next thing you know, we are now disconnected and no one even knows it. Right. As we went through this turnaround at Souls for Souls, I mean, there were three years that we never, we didn't know if we were going to make it, right? So there was a lot of stress of just the business part. And at the same time, we're trying to rebuild the culture and the relationships inside the organization. And you nailed it. I mean, I shouldn't play poker to start with. I wouldn't last five minutes because I don't have that ability to hide. <laughs> like there's, there's no... <laughs> There's no gap between how I'm feeling and how I present. So I think the thing, Kevin, to answer your question about how I did it is just to finally hear from the people I care about saying, dude, what is wrong with you? I mean, it was that kind of, we'd gotten far enough along that people could give me that feedback. If you're that frustrated, you are not helping your cause. If what you want is transparency and people being willing to talk to each other and be honest with each other and say hard things, as soon as somebody asks you why and you get your backup, you just lost ground. So it was a very emotional response, but sort of a rational process to say, this is just not getting me where I, it's nobody's better for me acting this way. I know I work with a lot of leaders who ha the hair on the back of their neck gets up. It's called hackles, by the way. I, I ended <laughs> up writing a blog post about it and I decided to go to the dictionary and Hackles are actually from animals and they have them on the backs of their neck and they're a response to threat. And you'll actually see when, when a dog has got his hackles up, it's visible. You actually yeah, see, right. you see this ridge coming from the bottom of their <laughs> head down their back and you should stay away from that dog at, at that moment. <laughs> but that's an emotive response. And what you're telling me here is, and I hope the listeners are getting it, we would call it defensiveness really is the best way to put it. And so if you're going to be a leader who says, I think it's important to tell the people why I have to be prepared for that happening over and over and over again. And then the potential for me to get defensive, to defend my position, because even if I'm getting defensive and thinking I'm hiding it, we know that they know. <laughs> Because the hackles on the back of your neck, I have a, I have a couple of clients who are almost albinos like me. You know, they got that Irish, you know, super alabaster blue eyes, and we can't hide anything. It starts with the cheeks, moves to the ears, and there's there's no hiding it. It just doesn't happen. But what you're saying to the listeners is, you have to figure out how to be prepared to deal with your why on a regular basis and then secondarily deal with your defensiveness of getting riled. And I think I heard you say you got to a point where you somehow got people comfortable with telling you when they thought your hackles were up or you were getting riled. 
Tell me about that process. I mean, because that I think is the key. That's where that's where a leader has actually invited people to give him feedback, and he's aware enough to say, "I may not be aware in the moment that I'm sending an energy, so ra- feel free to raise your hand." Or if you don't understand what I've said, or you don't even buy into it, you need to tell me. So how did you get there, do you think? I mean, is it just an arrival of one day it was happening, or were you conscious that you had to make a decision? I got to deal with my own riledness. I think there are two, maybe three pieces to that, Kevin. One is we have a pretty small executive team. And the guy who is our COO and president now, and I just have immense respect for, he said some version of that in his very direct way, like, uh, I won't swear, but he did, of, what are you doing? That didn't go very well. So there was a moment where he sort of called me. So that that was helpful for just a hard check, like, okay, that did not go like you wanted it to. That was one. Two, for me, is a way to kind of think things through and process. And so when I took the time, one of my takeaways was if I get defensive every time I have to defend this, why don't I write it down and I can share it with people and then we can talk about what I wrote and I've, I've got more time to sort of be prepared, right? And not just in the moment have to come up with some of the ability to stop and calm down. And then the third thing was, again, which I'm sure you and a lot of folks listening do, but we had a 360 process that I went through with the board, the executive committee of the board, and that didn't get hit really hard, but it was enough for me to realize if I don't ask, am I communicating, which is mainly my job as the CEO, I think, in the ways that people are hearing, then I'm not doing my job. You know, most of the feedback was pretty good, but there were a couple of things like, hmm, I could work on that. So the 360 thing was actually really helpful to me. I have a slight bias on them because some of the ones that I've seen, you can get, you know, like this one to five ranking, right? And you, you get a bunch of fives and then a couple of get whacked with a few ones and you end up looking at a score that's 3.2. Like, what do you do with it? Like, like, <laughs> And then eventually when I finally get to the meat of it, it's always in the comments. Yeah, and, absolutely. I, and I've watched guys read the comments and immediately go, oh yeah, that's Sally Smith. <laughs> She's, she, I know who that is. Like, <laughs> you know, one of the things that that one that we went through that I found really comments, of course, were helpful. If I got past identifying, who yeah, said it, right. was there the way that they stacked them up was here's what you said about yourself, here's what this group said about this, and here's what another group. So maybe it was for me, it was like the board internally and myself. It wasn't just the score. I didn't really actually pay that much attention to the score, but those places where there were big gaps between what I thought I was, how I thought I was doing and somebody else thought I was doing, that was really valuable. So the scores didn't matter, but if I just said, there's a lot more yellow bar here than red bar, what's that telling me? What's that telling me? Yeah, I get that. And so that was helpful. This is excellent. I, I love this. A quick pivot. Would you tell everybody your path real quick? How did you end up here? in this. I mean, the lessons that you're teaching and, and sharing are just fantastic. I'll give you a heads up when we get ready to wrap up. I do a little thing called moments of sheer clarity that I got from it. And I kind of read them back to the listeners. But when I've got so many already, I don't know what I don't have to take any more notes. So thank you for that. I appreciate <laughs> it. But I, I'd love people maybe to know a little bit more about your path. I mean, how, how did you end up here? What, what did that look like? Sure. Well, thank you for the opportunity to do that. So my dad was a coal miner. His dad was a coal miner. So I come from that. And my father left. He did not finish high school. He got his GED in the army. And once he realized that sort of coal mining was not what the path he wanted to be on, he left and moved us to rural Pennsylvania still. And that was certainly a life-changing kind of thing. Looking back, of course, I had no idea what that meant. But when he decided to get out of that coal mining thing, he opened up a whole other world to me because that led then to moving to suburban Washington, D.C., where I went from this incredibly homogenous, white, sort of lower middle class thing to this pretty cosmopolitan. You know, we lived near Quantico Marine Base, so people from all over the world. It was it blew me away. And of course, it's much bigger 
And that opened my eyes to the incredible potential that was out there. So I was the first one on either side of my family to ever go to college. And that was a big deal. And probably one of the most pivotal things, Kevin, when you ask that question, this always comes to mind. I thought I was going to be an economics major when I went to college. And I got there and I placed out of some things. And my advisor was a religious studies professor. And he said, hey, you've got some open spaces. Why don't you take my class? So I took his class and he was a world religion professor. And I totally fell in love. Wow. So two years later, when I said to my father, hey, I'm not going to be an economics major. I'm going to be a religious studies major. <laughs> oh, my God. It's still the biggest fight my father and I have ever had. I mean, he freaked out. The learning point actually is he said, you have an opportunity to get a great job. I've worked my whole life so that you could do this and you're going to throw it away and do what? You're going to be unemployable. So there was this. And I said, I thought I was coming here to get an education. Mm. And you know, that's looking back sort of what a privileged uppity thing to say to your father who had done all these amazing things to sacrifice for this to happen. But I have to say that that did set me on a path of saying, what is interesting, what moves you is probably not a bad path to follow. And so that led me to do theater, which is another terrible financial decision <laughs> to go after. But then that led me to go to business school. I got an MBA and an MA in arts administration at SMU in Dallas. And that's how I came to YPO. After that, I, my first job after business school was the you know, president's organization. And I thought I had been to business school and then I met YPO and that, I mean, it just blew my mind. Of, I mean, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything. And so, so to work globally with these successful people and you know, there were all the things to make fun of too, right? Like the money that got spent and the food and the kind of crazy stuff. And so there was a part of me that was like, this is insane. And there's another part of me that thought, this world is incredible to me. Their connectivity and their ability to have an impact. Sometimes that was good, sometimes that was bad, but it was tangible. So I PO, I left, I did some startup stuff. I came back to YPO, left and did some startup stuff and then came back. So I worked there three different times. And I would say the third time was the most powerful because I came back as the chief network officer. And that's when YPO launched all of these ways to connect people around their personal and professional interests. And that was a transformative moment for YPO that I still think 20 years later is having huge ripple effects. But personally, I mean, I love that. To, to connect people was what I love to do. And, and that audience who was hungry for it, it was a really easy thing to do. I got fired from there. Very brutal. Like, I did not want that to happen. And looking back, of course, it was the best thing that did. I went into business with a YPOer. I got into YPO in 2010. So to have worked there and then to be a member and I got active and contributed and helped lead things. And it feels like all of that came together at Souls for Souls because we have this service component around not-for-profit and governance. I had a great grounding in that in YPO. And the other things that I did around business and that part of Souls for Souls, which we run like a business, I had all these resources and experiences to draw on, and I get to use that every day. Of course. And so, so professionally, that's it. Married now for 27 years, two kids. I love Nashville, Tennessee. This I wish I'd figured out this town a lot sooner. I'm really happy here. And to be 56 and as satisfied professionally and to also feel like I could do this for 20 more years and be satisfied. There's so much, I mean, I don't have this sense of like, I'm coasting to the end or anything like that. Every day I'm like, we're not even scratching the surface of what's possible. So I feel really energized by what's ahead as well. Wow. That that's a great spot to be in. I'm, you know, out in the coaching world and I see people on different sort of trajectories and uh, there's a lot of folks who are stuck. I'm always fond of my family business clients because you just ended up getting a certain last name and your path to the world just went down to a tiny channel. It's going in one direction. And I actually have, I have a couple of clients that are at opposite ends of the spectrum. One is there's a very strong desire to have a legacy business and the next generation and a lot of planning for the next generation and looking at the up and coming uh, youngsters and there's a bazillion cousins now and there's pathways, what have you. And then at the opposite end, and I, and I have a, um, a podcast interview with Lisa Stein out of the Columbus chapter. 
And she, without even volunteering, just came point blank. She said, oh, yeah, and every once in a while, people ask me if my daughters are going to be interested in coming into this business. And I have flat out said, absolutely not. Never over my dead body. And then, her, and then she fills it in with something poignant. She says, I don't want to rob them of what it means to truly find yourself. Yeah. To become wow. who you should become because of who you are and what you do and what you can bring to the world. And she said, if I put them in here, all of that goes away. Yep. So it's quite quite fascinating differential between the two. We're coming up on maybe another 10 minutes or so at the most here. I, I'm just blown away by our time together. You've been a gift to me over the years. I have a personal question I wanted to ask you because a lot of the the work that I do, I try to get people in touch with the messaging of their parents and the focus of relationship with parents, one or both, you know, they they all have an impact. So when you mentioned your dad as a coal miner, I mean, I have all the stereotypes in my mind, you know, of Appalachia, hard scrabble and all the stuff that goes with it. And that the pivotal moment you talked about when you had this discussion, my dad takes the position, dude, I put you through school. I sacrificed. I worked in a coal mine and I wanted you to get a great job. And you said I wanted to get a great education. And it was one of the biggest fights. Did you ever reconcile, resolve, or reconnect? You know, no. We came to a short-term compromise, which is bizarre looking back. I also majored in French. He thought that would somehow having a second language would make me more employable. So we sort of bridged that immediate thing. And then I went to business school. So I think he felt like, okay, you're not bereft. <laughs> you know, I, I never I never had to lean on them financially for anything, but he would I think they were worried. But I don't think we ever really addressed it. And then a couple of years ago, Kevin, I wrote a book about souls for sold called shoestrings. And I work with a YPOer in Charleston, Adam Witte, who has a company called uh, Advantage Publishing. And Chance to work with a writer. And so we were going through there, sort of your question, like kind of what was your path? I said, look, it's not that important to the story. I said, you got to give it a little bit. It's part of the deal. I'm like, okay. So I told that story and it wound up, we, we kept it. Only two years ago did I reconcile with my father. There was no tension around it. I mean, things have kind of worked out, but the chance to say to him, because he remembered it too, <laughs> the chance to say to him, that was a pivotal moment. It told me a lot about myself. It did not make, I mean, I was mad at the time, but it did not in any way, it didn't make me see my father in a negative light. It just made me realize I'm going to have a different path and that's okay. So we did have a moment of sort of celebrating that, but it was 30 years in the making. Wow. Wow. Does it feel good now though? Yeah. You know, now, now there's a lot of joy in telling that story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was a time it's been a long time ago now, but there was a time when like, you know, the fact that my dad was a coal miner and we came from this kind of background was, I was embarrassed a little bit by that. Sure. Yep. And now I look back and realize, so my father, when he left the coal mines, went to work for the government and as a coal mine inspector and then stayed in that world. But he did these amazing things. Like by the time he was done, he had people with PhDs and law degrees working for him. Right. So his work ethic, and that sort of stuff. Now I really value what I learned from that. And it, so it took me a while to, to put all that together. Yep. It's one of the nice things about staying alive long enough to do that. Amen, brother. Amen. Well, this, this has been better than I expected. I'm not surprised because you, you're an amazing guy and have a great story. I wanted to make sure people heard the name of the book. It was called Shoestrings. 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 Yes. How your shoes and clothes help people pull themselves out of poverty. Well, I'm highly recommending that to my folks out there who are listening. And Buddy's a very humble guy, and as you can tell, having listened to him. But there's some great learning. So I want to just kind of walk through some moments of sheer clarity that I that I heard, and then I'm going to finish with my signature closing question. 
And if you've listened to any interviews, you know it's coming. And most of my guests haven't listened to other interviews, so they they're equally surprised the first time. So, so it's really it's really perfect. It's really perfect. I would start with listening to the importance of values for those of you. Almost every company I work with has some values listed somewhere, and and I would say they're anywhere from uh, nothing more than a poster on the wall and some things on a website that nobody could recite ever. They don't remember or they'll remember one or two. And the message here is actually have values that have power and purpose. They should be, first of all, true, and they're easy to say and easy to remember the hard part comes in living them. And what buddies values are is transparency, entrepreneurship, accountability, and meaning. And he focused on meaning. And so one of the ways he reinforces values is that they are telling stories at management meetings every day about any one of the four values and how that actually came to be. And so these values are repeated, discussed, and people bring them to life. And they bring them to life on a regular basis, so they're always part of how this company works. And he also talked about something I, I haven't thought about, which is, are the values synergistic? Do they have relationship to each other? And one of the great moments was how two of those values worked well together, which was transparency and meaning. And Buddy saw them come together. It was more of a one plus one equals three or four because when they were integrated, they became the cornerstone of how Souls for Souls actually recovered from a very challenging set of circumstances. And the transparency and the purpose and the meaning became integral parts of how this incredible organization, which I, I don't know if he bragged enough about it, but I hope you're going to go to Souls for Souls and the website and take a look at the work that they're doing. So I got how values work together. I certainly heard you reinforce the importance of the why. I'm to him a Simon Sinek fan and he has great video on the why. But what stood out to me was was how explaining the why is something that has to be repetitive to the point of potentially frustrating you. And as the leader you have to be open to explaining and re-explaining, even if you've had to do it 10,000 times to the point of frustration, you must eventually get a handle on your frustration and stop being defensive or frustrated or impatient that you have to continuously explain because unless people get the why, they can't feel that they are truly equal, that they're status, their ideas, their connection with the organization actually matters. And that's a feeling, that's connection that we're on some kind of peer setting. The third thing I, I took away when we had this conversation about being a CEO who is willing to explain why and wants to explain why and isn't getting defensive when he explains why, it reminded me you can't hide what you feel. So when you're a CEO and you're feeling frustration and you're feeling annoyance, even if you're trying to hide it, you have to take my word for it. It is not hidden. People see it and they sense it and they feel it. And you'd be better off being transparent and coming clean and telling people at the point of impact, I know I'm frustrated. I know I sound tired. I know I get annoyed and it's okay. I don't want that to get in the way. I have to hear what you have to say. And I want to guarantee you that I'm going to hear it and take it to heart. And I'm not afraid to explain it as many times as necessary. It's because I want you to understand. Because to you, it's powerful for you to understand, to feel part of this. And I also made a note about meaning, that you had meaning defined in two ways. And I think having, there's a lot of research about millennials now coming to work and they're less oriented towards the power of the money and the, and the material world. They actually want to feel a sense of meaning and purpose when they come to work. So the timing is, is good for this. But you describe meaning in two ways. One is 
having people understand how what they do for their end users, their clients or nonprofits, the people they serve, how it makes meaning for them, that what we do for them touches them, that they feel a meaning and a purpose and an outcome. And then that the second part was that persons in the job who have a role, they feel meaning in their work and in their job. And then I'll stop there and just check in with you. Did I, did I get it? Can you clarify or? No, you nailed it, Kevin. That's very well done and said more succinctly than I ever could have. It was perfection for me. And this is a bonus add-on of sheer clarity moment for me. I don't know if we designed it or it just came out, but the idea of reconciliation with our loved ones. You heard Buddy tell a beautiful story about a big disconnect with his father about his path. And he held his ground at the time and it took him 30 years. Better late than never, I guess. (laughs) And that was the message I got. It was great. Thank you so much, Buddy. Here's the uh, closing question. You're 56 years old. You're standing on the path of your life right now. And I want you to turn around and face your past and take a look at Buddy at the age of 23. And what advice would 56-year-old Buddy wish he had heard when he was 23 from Buddy? What advice would you give to your 23-year-old self? I would say two very different things. I would say one, to reinforce one of your moments of sheer clarity. And that is it's okay to stand your ground in the face of family pressure and everything else. It's okay. And be prepared to deal with the consequences of that, but don't give up too easily. And I think the second thing I would say, Kevin, is I did not, I'll say it this way, to 23-year-old buddy, I would say, don't be afraid to be emotional. You don't have to be in control of everything the whole time. And I think I missed out along the way on some relationships and people that I could have been a lot more open with and I wish I had been. And it's taken me a long time to get to that point. Wow, beautiful. Great messaging for the 23-year-olds today. Well, thank you, buddy. On behalf of all my listeners, I want to say thank you. Thank you, too, for the work that you're doing in the world to help people who are unfortunate and impoverished. I think you are making a huge difference. I want to remind everyone to visit Souls for Souls, and that's all one word, right? S-O-L-E-S-F-O-R-S-O-U-L-S? No, we're we're much more clever than that, so we make it hard, Kevin. It's S-O-L-E-S, the number four, Okay. S-O-U-L-S dot O-R-G. All right, let me repeat it. S-O-L-E-S, the number four, S-O-L-S-O-U-L-S dot org or com. Org. .org. All right. Take a look out there and it'd be a great organization for you to support. Also take a look for Buddy's book called Shoe Strings. And that will be a wrap up. Thank you, Buddy, again for a tremendous opportunity to talk with you. It was my pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for making the time. Okay. Well, everyone, that will bring us to another episode of Sheer Clarity. I hope you'll go visit us at SheerClarity, what's one word, dot com. You can see the website. We've got plenty of blogs and discussions and episodes and tremendous interviews. Next week, we are still working on, I've got several opportunities and several guests, and we may actually maybe talk again more about where we are with COVID-19, this virus scare. So for the time being, we wish everyone to stay healthy and safe, follow the guidelines that our country is following right now. And as leaders, take care of your people connect with them, speak to them more frequently than you ever have. And with that, we'll say goodbye. Thanks.